0: Welcome to episode 13 of the Pilot's Journey podcast, where we discuss aviation, maintaining proficiency, and enjoying the journey. My name is Stuart Stevenson, a.k.a. Pilot Stu, a private pilot in North Dallas.
1: And my name is Stuart Stoll, a.k.a. CFI Stu, a certified flight instructor near Fort Worth, Texas.
2: And my name is Mike Hart, a.k.a. Mike Stu, a private pilot, aircraft owner, and IFR student in Idaho Falls, Idaho. So we went with Mike Stu, huh? Mike stew. You know, uh, there's pilot stew. There's CFI stew. It's got to be Mike stew. I just don't see any other, other way around it. I'm so, just going to have to go there. So, have we have we decided on the spelling of stew? Have you gone with the U or the EW? I'm doing the hybrid at the moment. I'm Mike Stew. S T U E W. I am all of you. Ah. Well, yeah, I, 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 it, <laughs> I, I actually, actually I reserve the right to change my stewness. Mazel Tov, tov, Stuart! It's a boy. (laughs) Oh, yes, that's my stuosity factor.
1: Stuosity factor. Hmm, that one's going in the book.
2: (laughs) Yes, my training as a geologist. We always in geology, there's you're always describing stuff, you know, and and for whatever reason, ossity and uh, ociousness and. It's amazing how many adjectives you can create.
1: (laughs) Well, I like that one. I mean, it's... I like to be, you know... um, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Associated with ferocity and tenacity. So I'll take (laughs) take Stuosity.
2: (laughs) I like that. So, Mike, have you Uh, done any flying lately? You know, um, mostly virtual. I'm trying to think. But since the last time we were... uh, uh, last podcast i did go up um for some uh training now i'm trying to remember what what we did when we went training ah we did um uh, uh practice uh, some holds basically the whole idea of well no hold it. actually I, I went went flying with a buddy that's what it was it's like what i'm trying to remember and i <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't with my ifr my instructor i, I decided i was going to go do some some flying so i flew out uh and what was interesting is, like, so I'm going to just do an RNAV approach. So I, you know, to save gas, I punch in GPS direct to the airport, and we're flying over uh, the the nuclear reactor site that uh, is right in the Idaho desert, that, that it, where a lot of the work I do is is based out of. So we're kind of looking over out the window and looking at the the uh, the, the reactor that that we're involved in demolishing, actually, and removing stuff from. And uh, so we fly over the top of that and then we continue on. And again, so I'm, I'm GPS direct, trying to make the, the, the straight line. And, and I'm learning how my, the Garmin 430 does GPS and RNAVs and approaches. And it's like, okay, I'm just a total cavo day. So I just punch in the RNAV approach. And you know, I, it's like, I'm gonna fly this as though I'm in the clouds, but my head's gonna be on a swivel, we're VFR and just see what how it's gonna have me intercept this approach. And uh, a couple things that really surprised me. One was, uh, because I was flying into the airport GPS direct, I it ended up, you know, I inter- intercepted a GPS waypoint that was not where I was expecting. Or when I, when I got to the waypoint, it's like, okay, now I'm flying the procedure. Uh, and the procedure had me fly straight over the airport at 8,000 feet. And then fly ten miles away, do a turn back, and then come back in and start stepping down altitudes uh and interestingly the the g p s when you step down uh you when you get to the decision height, you are orthogonal to the runway it's a circling approach and that that in itself was like, oh how interesting i I had no idea that that's what." You know an RNAV approach might look like at a, a backwater airport in the mountains
1: what's the airport identified
2: ARCO is AOC
1: AOC all uh, right uh, but county airport <laughs>
2: what was that's that cute. that's Butte now <laughs> <laughs> in fact that in fact there's a reason why you stay at 8000 there's a, um, a volcano out in the middle of the snake river plain I mean snake river plain is is almost featureless through this part of the the valley and i mean it's just this big flat and the word plain describes it other than you have these uh volcanoes that that pop up out of it and uh big southern butte is seventy five hundred uh, 75 6, 75 feet 7560. so I, I did this little approach and and Interestingly, we, when we, uh, there was a nice little volcano that we circled over that was where the, where the actual uh, procedure turn is out there. And um, so I didn't actually do a real procedure turn. I, I did a procedure turn so we could kind of circle around this really cool symmetrical volcano on the, on the plane. And then, you know, came in, did our approach, did touch and go. Um, Craters of the Moon National Monument is just maybe 10 miles to the north or not north, uh, to the southwest of this location. So I mean, we're really, really close to a set of... Uh, this is making this place sound like a, a volcanic terrain, which, again, <laughs> the reality is it is. Craters of the Moon is a really cool national monument. It's um, They've had, oh, gosh, five, six volcanic or basaltic eruptions at 2,000-year intervals, and the last one was 2,000 years ago. So A, we're due for an eruption, and B... Two thousand year old basalt doesn't have any growth on it it's just rock it's and it's right there, uh, so anyway, but at the same time it's also a national monument so you want to be you know two thousand feet AGL above it yep. so that you're you know being mindful and respectful of the wilderness that it is and uh, since I just left this airport here in Arco, I wanted to get high, so to speak uh, and, and at pa- the same time. I also wanted. to, I'm out there practicing maneuvers, so it's like, hey, let's do a chandelle. So, <laughs> so, so we're heading towards craters, and uh, you know, I got it floored, and uh, you know, just did a practice chandelle just for the sake of. Uh, I really didn't need to be reversing course, but I also, but I did want to get gain some altitude, so I respect the the national park and their, you know, again the 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 requested stay 2,000 feet AGL.
0: I must Another have missed something. I didn't have to do Shandell's on my instrument ride.
2: I was just about what? to say I was just about it's to say not it's not instrument. i am trying to go for commercial as well as instrument. If I'm gonna do one, I might as well do both, right? Uh, I was just there about to go. say,
1: Stuart, that he's an overachiever.
2: <laughs> well you know, you know, you never know when you might need to do a Shandell. You know, you an ATC may call. Two two five Mike, uh Shandell into the holding <laughs> pattern.
0: Yeah. Well, I don't think I've ever gotten that call.
1: 225 uh, Mike I need a, a series of lazy eights on final if you could. <laughs> well, I like that I just want to I want to ask you because you brought this approach plate to my attention
2: okay yep absolutely I,
1: I just want to ask you maybe two or three questions about it um, the three common questions that stump students on their instrument Ooh. Uh, about GPS approaches
2: okay alright And keep in mind, I will, my, my caveat, my, uh, the good news is I'm early enough in my training. I can, I can, I can fail and all all I'm doing is learning. Right.
1: Right. So ask away. I thought this, I thought this would be interesting and kind of maybe impress your instructor. Yeah. because I've actually met some instructors, believe it or not, which don't know some of this stuff or at least off the top of their head, which they should, but all right. So the first one is the little T in the triangle. Do you see that? Uh, right. The uh, All right. What does that mean, the T in the triangle?
2: Um, it means there is, and I'm going to go, and what's funny is I know what it means. It means I have to go to the front of the book. This is a uh, two- take off. It's a it, takeoff minimums. There are takeoff minimums for this airport.
1: Okay. Well, this is a two-part question, really. Aha. Uh-huh. So, correct. It means, uh, well, somewhat correct. It does have to do with takeoff minimums, right? But what type of takeoff minimums?
2: Uh, departure procedure. Uh
1: Stars. No, no, it's not a star. That's a. No, that's a that's, those are arrivals. Five, well, look, yeah. that's
2: a, but what's the opposite of a star?
1: Or the would uh, 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 be a depart. DP departure procedure. But this is takeoff minimum. This has to do with the airport takeoff minimums, right? So it's the, really it's, a one
0: twenty one one thirty five thing, isn't it?
1: No, no. This is this is if it's on this approach plate and in your IFR, this pertains to you, right? Okay. So this. Uh, this T in the triangle means that there's non standard takeoff minimums for this airport.
2: Right, right. That it's uh, not just whatever the, the, what you would do just by. Well, it's, it's not standard. Barring. It's right.
1: not, yeah, it's not standard takeoff minimums. Right. Okay. So then you can go to either, if you're in the government approach, uh, the government plates, you can. Right. I've
2: got the TERPS and it just says takeoff minimums, runway six, NA obstacles, departure procedure, use JATS. Which is a, a, the JP or GPS uh, waypoint.
1: Right. And they'll usually say, oh, hey, you need to have this certain visibility and, and, uh, to take off at this airport unless you can make so many feet per minute climb, yada, yada, yada. But um, the question is, okay, if that's the non-standard takeoff minimums, what are standard takeoff minimums?
2: Oh, man. And uh, I'm going to say uh, 602 miles.
1: No, those are um, those are for, those are standard alternate minimums for okay. precision approaches. So uh, it's kind of a trick question. Not really. The standard takeoff minimums are uh, there aren't any.
2: It's. I was just going to say. Actually, hold it. Wait. What's funny is. All right. So my my instructor and I we did a simulation yesterday. Uh, it was. All right. So if we were to be departing on this big monster road trip we're doing in a, a month from now. Uh, go no go decision are we gonna go to you know let's look at the weather right now at the end of this was at the end of our uh, discussion of, of holding patterns you know so what's the what's the go no go based on a regs b the reality of the weather and c our personal minimums and and that was one of the things he said well you know to, to be honest the reality is uh take we could go we could take off zero zero
1: That's absolutely correct. That's standard takeoff minimums, right there. Exactly.
2: It's pretty stupid, but you Mm can't.
1: Yeah, yeah. I agree that if anyone gets it in their head that oh, it's zero zero out, I can't see my hand in front of my face, but I'm going to take off an airplane. Good luck. (laughs) Taking off's not the problem. There will be no legal action, but if you have an engine failure, you know, fifty feet above the runway, godspeed.
2: all right, but here's here's the thing. What's funny is that that exact question or that exact scenario came up, and and one of the things that that and I will argue that there's actually a legitimate reason. Uh, like here, uh, there are zero zero conditions. In fact, I've even seen zero zero. Uh, where I would say that the truly the uh, the um, maybe a hundred feet visibility on runway two two zero, and this is. In a, and at Idaho Falls, there's a one, runway one seven three five, where it was unlimited visibility. In other words, you had a bank of fog that was covering one runway and completely out of the runway on the other one. So you can see that the weather is clear. Right, and you're had- there's, there's a twenty foot layer of fog. Now, it, is it is it smart to go flying? You know, doing road, you know, flying, at, taking off, flying blind with a hundred feet visibility. You know getting up to 60 miles an hour where you can't see what's in front of your face rotating and as soon as you get 20 feet you're going to be above it so the i could argue and and the the other thing is in that situation what if i my in, in engine fails well if your engine fails and you don't have enough altitude you're supposed to just go forward and land anyway uh as opposed to instrument you're until you can get up to where you could do an instrument procedure to get back to the airport, you really don't have the benefit of an instrument. You know, you're still going to have to land very, very quickly. If well, you 20,
1: well, 20 feet of fog is, is basically just ground effect anyway, <laughs> you know? So, right. uh, you know, again, you know, pilot and I command not, decisions. Pilot the reality is
2: I wouldn't do it, but the funny thing is I could see, I mean, again, this is one of those weird, funky things where the, I have truly been there where the tower was above the fog and the tower could see runway one seven and it's literally unlimited visibility. And the main runway, the 9,000 foot runway is completely IFR, not just low IFR, but I mean, it's, it's unlandable.
1: Right. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a, there's a situation for everything. And, you know, that's why these regs exist, but, Uh, Uh you know, if it was twenty feet, I'm pretty confident. I mean, if I know the airplane, I'm pretty confident that the engine will fail. Yeah, I'll, I'll take off and go to my destination and wait for the fog to clear. But again, you know, you have to, you have to assume. Yeah, you can take off, but and you may get in clear visibility. But then, what if your engine fails? Right, you what still if,
2: have to. You have to. The, the reality is that's the most. One of the places where you are most vulnerable to a need to to redirect your your course, which is somewhere very quickly after you take off, if if there's a major upset condition in the engine, that's where it's going to present itself. Well,
1: right. I mean, how, how can you circle back to land or how do you, you know, how do you do anything if you can't see the runway? Well, you know,
2: yeah. what's, what's one of the funny things though, is this, this was one of the, the, the ironies of, of this for me, at least in, in looking, doing this whole exercise. Cause then the, this morning when I woke up, the, uh, you know, the forecast was one mile visibility, 600 feet, uh, Ceilings. Ooh, wow. <laughs> so it's like it's like okay. That's 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 really pretty dicey. Now the reality is when I woke up, it was actually twenty five hundred feet visibility, and uh, I'm not sure what the miles was. Probably five miles visibility. So in other words, we had a you know a marginal VFR. The forecast was you know for it to be really nasty IFR, and the reality was that this morning it was not as bad as it was forecast. But, you know, when we were doing our go-no-go simulation last night, it was like, well, what would we do? It's like, well, your wife would pack because we're going to leave to get to Grand Junction tonight. Because if we get four hours of flying in, the trip has begun. And if we wait till tomorrow, we might not get out of here. Uh, And then today, uh, even though it was, you know, 2,500 feet marginal VFR, the reality is it was icing conditions. So it's like... And this is one of the this is the irony I guess for me was the fact that um, here I am working on IFR so I can fly and the reality is if I really wanted to fly to Texas, I could have scud run from here to Salt Lake with a twenty five hundred foot ceiling or a three thousand foot ceiling and uh you know if if conditions don't allow me to get through a few of the lo- the, the passes then I, I double back and, and can land uh But would I want to climb through icing and IFR or, you know, climb through a cloud in the the kind of weather we were having? No way. Yeah. No no way do I want to be in a cloud uh, in the kind of weather conditions that are are predominant right now. So I thought that was, I thought, again, the irony is like, wow. So in other words, here I am doing IFR training so I could have more options. And the reality is that... (laughs) <laughs> particular set of situation of weather cards that are are laid uh vfr would get me out of the valley and then i could pick up a, an ifr clearance once i got down to salt lake and and could clear the you know but would i want to get in clouds get my wings wet no way absolutely not yeah. not right now which well, is funny but- i i had no idea that that would be a That that there would ever be a situation where I could fly VFR but not IFR.
1: You know, but, you know, IFR comes up with some other situations where even in complete VFR scenarios, that, you know, filing IFR can be a little bit more convenient. But,
2: um, okay. All right. Well, I I was going to say, but they wouldn't, the, the altitudes I would have to climb to to be in the system are in, I'd have to go through icing or be in icing. And so it's like, so an IFR, uh, out is not in the cards.
1: Well, you can always request lower. I mean, they. I mean, you can say, "Hey, there's icing up here." I would. I mean, yeah. I'm visual right now. I would just like to request this altitude as I depart out and then continue on.
2: Well, but see, I, I would be flying literally below their radar. I be, be oh, yeah. okay. Well, then That's the thing, I, I would be able. I could fly VFR, but I'm below MOCA's. I'm below MEAs. I'm below any, any route that any sane. Or that's on the chart. I mean, I could get out of the place. That's what I'm saying. I'm literally scud running to get out, but I've got 2,500 foot ceilings. I mean, I can get out truly in VFR conditions. I've got enough ceiling to uh, to fly comfortably below the clouds.
1: All right, next question.
2: Yeah, I was gonna say. Yeah, give me a, give All it right. to it.
1: Okay, this just pertains to GPS approaches. Okay. Uh, okay, this is a this is the next one that everyone asks about a GPS approach. And, Stuart, you can chime in on this one, too, if you know this one. Um, what is RAIM?
2: Rain is an R-A-I-N-E? R-A-I-M. M- no, hold M- oh, RAM. oh RAM. RAM. RAIM. RAIM. That's predictive
0: uh, accuracy of the GPS, but I can't recall what the letters stand for.
2: That's correct. Hey, and
1: point to Stuart. Stuart gets the square. Oh, boy. <laughs> I'll take 300 for potpourri, Alex. <laughs> right. It, it, it stands for Receiver Autonomous Integrity Monitoring. And right. basically what it is, is to be able to shoot an approach, your GPS has to get RAIM to legally shoot the GPS approach. So what it does is, Receiver Autonomous Integrity Monitoring, the receiver monitors the integrity of the signal from the GPSs to, to ensure that they're strong enough to give um, Accurate guidance to the airport, so you don't hit anything. Right?
2: <laughs> oh, I hate it I, when I, I hit
1: prefer,
0: stuff. I, yeah,
2: I know. <laughs> obviously, a preference, a strong preference
1: on my part. So there's a specific point in the approach when you when your GPS checks and and gets rain. Oh. And on um, the King GPSs, it's very obvious, or it's more obvious in my opinion than the Garmin GPS on um, when you receive rain. Because if you do not get RAM on your approach, if you pass the point and your GPS says you do not have to RAM, you do not have the RAIM, you have to go missed. You can't shoot the approach.
2: Right. So even if everything it's telling everything looks good except for you don't have verification of RAM. Right. That or, that is sh- I will say Ramosity.
1: Right. Yeah, the Ramosity. So if you pass the final approach fix and you do not have RAM, that's immediate missed, you'll have to go out and shoot some other approach because your GPS isn't working. Is, is and well enough to
2: shoot an approach. Okay, now now I've got a research problem. Oh. I'm going to have to go look. Oh, at yeah, raiming, got- how, how to verify verify my rainness, my raimosity right? In my Garmin four hundred and thirty. Because I, I think don't the four hundred
0: and thirty gives you a uh, a message if it loses it, rain. It, it, do- it does. Well, yeah. It um. Well, uh, from my
1: understanding, well, for the King GPSs, there's a um the VNAV. When you have the approach, there's some letters that say VNAV and and yada 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 that are white, and when you get rain, they turn green. So there's a visual indicator right there. You don't have to do anything. You just look. Oh, it's green. I have rain. I can keep going. In addition, it gives you a message. And in the Garmin 430, you actually have to change the page to you know the settings information and then or something. Uh, I don't have as much experience with the Garmin 430 as I do with the King GPSs. But you actually have to change the pages and go specifically looking for it. I think you have uh,
0: to hit the. You'll have a little message uh, indicator that lights up. But it's the same right, well. message indicator that says you're approaching Class B or well, whatever. Well, the
1: Garmin the Garmin 430, ch- I believe, just assumes that you're always going to get RAIM. So what it does is it it will identify you if you lose rain. So, right. okay. so. So if you lose rain it'll let you know. Otherwise, you just already have it.
2: Right. So in other words, it's assumed unless you get a message that tells you you don't have it. Right. Exactly right. So the, the question is, but, is there, but at the same time, there's no visual that verifies that you do other than just absolutely trusting that right. gosh, those software programmers at well, Garmin are wonderful people.
1: Well, y- yes, but. You can um, from my understanding you can switch through so there's a, a page you can navigate to in the Garmin 430 and maybe if there's some listeners they can help me out because
2: well, I was I, say, I, very I, will be that I'm gonna go, I'm gonna have to figure this out because right right Definitely. The, the Impressive. Concept, this yeah. is basically a Reagan uh, challenge the trust but verify right
1: impress impress your instructor with this. Um, find the page that you can navigate to that says I have rain. Now, your GPS will only pick up rain so many miles from the final approach fix. And Stuart, do you know how many miles it is for the final approach fix that it'll get rain? Is it four? No, it's two. Two nautical miles. Now,
2: hold on. I have to ask, which Stuart are you talking to? Are you talking to, you know, Pilot Stu or are you talking to Mike Stu? Oh,
1: <laughs> I'm talking to Pilot Stu because <laughs> I
2: know. I,
0: I think you got I, to talk to Mike Stu. I, I
1: know CFI Stu and Mike Stu don't have a clue what I'm talking about, so.
2: No, you're right, but that, that this is like free instruction. I love this. Hey, I'll, you'll well, get the I bill on Friday. It,
1: so yeah, so RAIM receiver autonomous integrity monitoring, and you get oh, okay. it two nautical miles from the final approach fix, and if you don't have it, you have to go missed. So it's very important. So that's right. the, so, and then the final question I have. Okay. Final question I have ha- involves the... Um, well, let me see here. Let me see if I can find a better question. Blah, blah, blah.
2: <laughs> well, hold on. Wait don't a minute. You, you
1: got a cheat sheet here? Question. No, I don't have a cheat sheet. This is all from memory. I'm just he's, looking at the he's approach. basically
2: looking at the fact that we have an approach and he's now in CFI stew mode. So if you're looking
1: at this approach plate and you're looking at this whole procedure, it's a solid black line as opposed to a dashed line like the missed approach point. And I was going to ask you, why is that solid?
2: Because it doesn't have dashes.
1: <laughs> that is correct.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I'm always good for a pithy answer. <laughs>
1: Stuart, do you know why that line is solid?
0: That point. is your procedure turn. I'm not looking at the approach plate, but I think that would be your procedure turn in a uh, racetrack pattern, right? Look,
1: that well, is, cra- is absolutely correct,
2: Stuart. Stuart gets the other square. Oh, man, he's beating me. That's not fair. But you are yeah. an IFR pilot. I'd be an IFR stu- student. So. Yeah,
1: that's correct. I'm hoping to stump Stuart. I can, I'll, that's I'll, not hard. I'll stump you, Stuart. I'll, I'll find some way. But that is correct. This is not a, just a holding procedure. This is also a procedure turn in lieu of a hold, is the correct uh, the correct
2: term. Okay, so so, so had that been a uh, dashed line, it would have just been a holding. Correct, absolutely. Correct. To a procedure turn. Right, correct. This is a good segue, which is one of the things that, that for me a, a big part of this whole IFR training experience is. And and again, yesterday's episode, uh, uh, training really was about holding patterns. Is you know the whole idea of mentally you know you look at this. And, you know, I, I went out and flew this as a VFR pilot, basically, just to see what it's like. So I could see what a an IFR procedure looks like when I'm in totally VFR proce- uh, conditions and can kind of walk through it and, and understand what what am I doing in, in kind of in the real three-dimensional universe um, with, with all the lights on. And then, you know, if the lights were out, what would it be? And... Uh, you know, so much of it is, is being able to place yourself in your mind's eye. You know, the lights are out, but your mental faculties are there to place you cognitively where you think you're supposed to be and trying to create a mental map of all this stuff and a mental map of where the winds are coming from.
1: Right. Exactly. Situational awareness in the whole exactly. is very difficult. And you're lucky you have a GPS um, because. Uh, uh, let me tell you, ADF holds in strong hands are one of the hardest things you'll ever do as an instrument pilot.
2: I remember and, the uh,
0: nightmares from those. You know,
2: I, I, I'm uh, going to tell, tell you this is one of the things that uh, I, I'm very happy that my avionics in the, in the plane that I have, does, that they do not include an ADF as an instrument that's on the plane. <laughs>
0: I was very tempted to label my ADF in op when I took my checklist.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's what I've heard. And and it's, it's like, I really don't want to know. I, I, it's, I mean, it, it's great for listening to old Johnny Cash when you're flying, maybe, but. Uh, <laughs> All I get is the Disney Channel. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, but uh, other than that, I really, I'm not sure that I really ever really want to know because. Uh, it, it is so old school what an ADF does. And, and, they're, uh, and they're phasing them out. I mean, well, exactly. I mean, and, and in some ways, that's part of why, I, I mean, A, I'm like I said, I'm going to say I had the good fortune of not having an ADF. Now, the reality is, I mean, an ADF is just, it's one more data point. I mean, to be honest, it's actually beneficial to have it in your cockpit because, hey, it's one more thing to have. Exactly Right. But, but at the same time, as a, as an IFR student, I'm sure glad I don't have it.
1: <laughs> well, right. But, I mean, the ADF was the primary. Then your backup was navigating using a sextant with the stars. And then, right. and then it was VOR, and then ADF was your backup. And now it's GPS with VOR as your backup,
2: right? What, so. And what... You know, in, in studying for the whole IFR, uh, uh, the test, the actual because I haven't taken my test, I the, the, I, written, the written, the written, or no? though written, okay. I have not taken the written yet. Um, and one of the things I find is the fact that I'd say 25% of the questions are instruments that make no sense, or I'm not going to say make no sense. Uh, oh, I remember. I remember. I remember. Between the, between the AD, lots of questions that are ADF questions and lots of HSI questions. Exactly and questions right. I was just going to say ADF that and HSI. They don't even look like anything that I'm, I really ever plan on flying. And so it's like, it's anachronistic. Uh, the the test is so out of date in that it's it's teaching you how to fly a 1970s, 1980s air. You know, the, well, the system back then. That's well, that's what most of our airplanes are. <laughs> I was just going to say, and there's a legitimate benefit to that, which is uh, hey, the reality is, I mean, I happen to be flying a 50 year old airplane. It, it, it's it got updated avionics, but the reality is, I've flown other, th- other planes that don't have the package I have. And as a result, uh, I know that, you know, when you get your IFR, the whole point is this, you're verifying that you know how to fly instrument flight and it. No, an, that's air, it. An, it. an aircraft that is certified to fly in instrument flight conditions. And it could have any of those instrument packages and you need to know how to use it.
1: Exactly right. Yeah, it's, it's an instrument rating. It's not an instrument rating for a specific type of aircraft. So. Right,
2: right. But at the same time, you know, again, this is the, the beauty and benefit of being an aircraft owner is the fact that really all I need to learn is my plane. Uh, but for the test, I need to know an HSI and an ADF.
0: Right, exactly. So are the guys so, that are taking the test in a G1000 or uh Evodyne Series 9, are, are they cheating? No, they're not cheating because
2: the examiner... The is, I think the reality is I think they're, they're, you're even, uh, you're, in some ways, you're harder pressed because you have to learn two things. You have to learn how your plane works, and then you have to learn how all these old planes work. Because for the test, you have, the, the, the test questions are definitely biased towards old school. That's true. Right.
1: Yep. It is true. Mm-hmm.
2: So I'm out at Meacham and uh, I'm out on
1: the, watching my student pre-flight. And this okay, airplane.
2: This is Meacham is Fort Worth.
1: Right. It's a Kilo Foxtrot Tango Whiskey is the identifier for the airport. It's it's Fort Worth Meacham. It's just it's Fort okay. Worth. It's an international airport because it has a customs agent. Right. So I was out there and every now and then we get these. Um, You know, it's Texas. We got our guys who like to go hunting a lot down here, right? So uh, uh, this Cessna comes in and lands and kind of pulls up to the terminal area, which the um, customs agent kind of comes out uh, and an FAA guy kind of comes out. And I didn't really know who they were at first. I thought they may have just known the people, but Comes to find out that they were a customs agent and an FAA guy. And uh, when the guy, when the pilot opened the door to a Cessna to get out, all these beer cans, like empty beer cans, came oh. out of the airplane. Oh
2: god. And apparently I normally throw them
0: in the cargo area.
2: <laughs> Isn't it, you know you're a redneck when <laughs> exactly.
1: And apparently these guys were going out in their Cessna drinking while flying. And pointing their guns out the windows and shooting, like, wildlife out over certain <laughs> areas over Texas. And, uh, I, I mean, long story short, that's what we came to find out. But uh, I witnessed them being put in handcuffs. <laughs> and so, I mean. It, and rightly so. The airplane was full of in- empty beer cans and. And they confiscated the weapons. There were some rifles in there, and only in Texas. Only in
2: Texas. I uh, belong to the Idaho uh, Backcountry Pilots Association, which basically uh, is—or God, now I may not even have the right organizational name there. But in any event, uh, it's—they have a newsletter. It's an organization that basically keeps uh, maintains the backcountry here in Idaho and uh, advocates to keep those airports open, but. There was a, a story from back in the, oh gosh, I don't know when, back in the day, back in the 50s, 60s, uh, of a guy who was, uh, you know, they weren't hunting from the airplane, but you know people use the the airplanes to get to the backcountry to go hunting. That's really a really common reason for people to be doing it. But the problem is, at the end of the season, which is the hunting season always comes in fall, and that's when weather starting to get dicey, and uh, these guys, uh While they were loading the plane, you know, a gun was leaned up against something, it shot through the wing of the plane, it shot, hit somebody, and the guy was basically bleeding out. Uh, And at the same time, the weather's closing in and and becoming IFR, and it's night, and, you know, we're talking the 50s or 60s. It just was an epic. I actually played the story out over two newsletters. It was riveting. I mean, absolutely riveting. to kind of you know take yourself back into the day of when uh, flying in the mountains without instruments, uh, and that was the other thing. Uh, what else was it? Ian? So the, the guy's bleeding, the wing has been shot, uh, weather's closing, and I think the guy's pito tube froze. When he went to when he got to Cascade, he he circled the town because there were no runway lights, so they had to get people to go put their cars at the, at the runway to, to light it up so he could land and then get this bleeding guy out of his plane. <laughs> anyway, like I said, it was a riveting story. I mean, it was just an amazing story. It did not involve alcohol other than uh, that was, that was the antiseptic and uh, uh, what was the painkiller for the guy who had been shot. All right. I just
1: have to mention the best aviation story I've ever heard was in, a, I can't remember what magazine, I think it may have been AOPA, but, um, it was something about a, uh, a bank heist using a Cessna where they came in, they, these bank robbers had an airplane, they came in and flew the airplane, landed it right in front of the bank, went in, robbed the bank, came out and the cops were shooting at them and they got in the airplane and took off and got away. And this is way, way back in the, the 50s-ish you
2: know, era. That, you know, that's one of my one complaints about my airplane 225 Mike. It's got really, really big, n numbers painted on it you know i want those little discreet ones well you know you know where i can go rob a bank and no one will know i mean when i fly that that 225m is is very very obvious so i I, I don't get well nowadays you
1: you can't really get away from it but this this came this was stumbled upon by a new airplane owner who went out and bought a, a cessna I can't remember. I think it was a 172. He we went out and bought a brand new one. Well, not brand new, but went out and bought a 172, and um, was going over its uh, maintenance history and saw that there was bullet hole repair done. And uh,
2: that's where he found out the story. <laughs> yeah,
1: he was like bullet hole repair. What the hell? Went out. <laughs> yeah. Went out and investigated, and found this this newspaper article in this town where a Cesta came in and land, and these guys got out and robbed a bank and got in and it took off while cops were shooting at them. So, uh,
0: so any just, gold bars found in the tail cone?
1: No, no, none. But this guy owns this this airplane that was involved in probably the world's only aviation bank heist, which I thought was <laughs> which I thought was really cool.
0: Hey, it's Mark from AirPigs.com. You know, hog wild about anything that flies, and you're listening to the Pilot's Journey podcast.
2: I know, you know it's funny the, the that that kid in, in our the northwest here up in our, our neck of the woods that's flying uh, you know 182s and, and CRI and, and landing them in a in a rather rough way who who is self-taught by uh, Microsoft Flight Simulator. Uh, it, it's interesting. It, it, I think you know culturally, we all we all know that that's a bad thing to do, and it's wrong, and obviously we don't want it because it doesn't benefit the community of general aviation. But at the same time, it's like, but damn, that's cool. Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> you know, for somebody to <laughs> have figured it out, be able to steal a 182 and not die flying it. And, and I guess pr- horrendous IFR uh, or IFR and or significant wins that he's put these things down. in uh, again, not admirable in any way, but nonetheless,
1: uh, for aviation history, it's pretty cool.
2: For <laughs> like aviation that. history. And I think just as humans, we, we tend to find drama to be inter- entertaining and interesting. I mean, uh, and, there, would, and drama was- tends not to be legal. Or safe, <laughs> or reasonable, but drama is drama, and it, it is what pulls us into it.
0: Well, he only gets half of the the story, though. He, he, yes, he walks away, but no, the plane can't be flown again right away.
2: Yeah, and you know that's the whole—that's that, the thing. Do I want my plane stolen by somebody? Uh, well, if it's insured really well, and I, I get a headline, I can write a book about it. Well. <laughs>
1: Exactly right, and there was another. I was reading an uh, an online news article about uh, the guys who go out in repo aircraft.
2: Oh, God. I, I haven't heard that, I can imagine it. I've seen uh, that, repo I'll,
1: can. I'll, I'll I'll save that one for another time. But safe uh, suffice to All say right. that when you when someone's trying to hide their seven thirty seven, in uh, in in Turkey. And you go to Turkey to to take it, and they accuse you of stealing a 737, you spend a few years in a Turkish prison. It's not fun. So I'll save that one for another time. But anyway, yes, Stuart.
2: Thanks. Yeah, let's hear about this commercial, Stu.
1: Yeah, how's your commercial training
0: going? Commercial training? What's that? Uh, It's the... Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, well, it's not going as frequently as I'd like. Um, I have managed to fly, I uh, flew yesterday and uh, last Thursday, but it seems like weather is conspiring against me. But I did, I have to admit that I did fly my best uh, steep spirals yesterday and my best 180, uh, power off 180 spot landing.
1: So Ooh, I uh, want to hear about both of those. So your, your steep spiral, what, what contributed, what did you do differently in your steep spiral that made it your best?
0: Well, I had been trying to do it at the best glide speed, but I found out that that's just really not the right speed to do it at. And and the hardest part of that whole maneuver is holding your uh, airspeed. I was trying to do it at 75 knots in the Cardinal, which was the best glide speed. And that just was, the stall horn was sounding the whole time. Uh, I was having a hard time holding that speed. It would either get too fast on me or I get uh, an actual stall, neither of which was acceptable. By increasing that uh, speed to about 85 knots, I was able to hold it and actually stay over a point and maneuver that, you know, give them a fairly stiff wind, but go ahead and maneuver that around. And it, I was very pleased with the way that came out.
2: So uh, best glide is really close to stall? That doesn't sound right. Well, let me tell you, let me tell you why. So uh,
1: my instrument, my, I'm sorry, my commercial training, uh, I always taught in a cut, uh, cutlass. 172 RG. Okay. So the best glide was around 65 knots in a Cutlass RG. So when you're in a steep spiral, you have load factor, right? So when you're at best glide in that additional load factor, your stall speed increases. Right. Right. So, so he's, he's when he's at best glide and in that steep turn, He's about to stall the aircraft, which makes it really hard to maintain a speed and 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 an adequate descent rate for the maneuver. So what you have to do is you you can't maintain best glide. You actually have to maintain a higher airspeed because of the load factor. So in, for example, in the Cutlass RG, which the best glide would be around 65 knots, we would have to maintain around 80 knots in the steep spiral to to not stall that was that was the speed that was the speed we would we would shoot for
0: and that made a huge difference for me uh when i went to a higher speed a it was easier to maintain it wasn't uh, high and then low and i was out of the stall uh, envelope but also it became easier, much easier to maintain a, a spatial relationship to a point on the ground and that That's was right. all the difference in the world there
1: And then it just becomes like a power-off turn around a point, right?
0: It it really became quite easy. Uh, Even compensating for a fairly stiff wind became fairly simple. Uh, In the maneuver, I needed to do three turns. By the end of the first turn, I knew what kind of bank angle I needed at each point within the the turn. Uh, The the first time is a bit of an experiment, uh, but... After the first turn, I know. All right, I need about thirty degrees when I'm in the uh, the upwind portion. I need about fifty degrees when I'm in the downwind portion, uh, and then it becomes a fairly simple turn around a point.
2: Now did, what, what's the maneuver again? It's uh, a steep spiral,
0: starting at about four thousand feet to uh, do a no more than fifty-five degree bank, but to do a very steep spiral down, at least three rotations and then to pull out on a heading. And uh, as I understand it, most examiners then want you to do that over an airport into a power-off 180.
1: Right. So what it's really doing is simulating that you're at cruise altitude, you're way up high, and you lose an engine. But right underneath you just happens to be an airport that you can land at. So instead of just bleeding out altitude, you stay, the steep spiral... Is designed to keep you right over the airport as you're losing altitude. And then you can roll out on pattern altitude and then come in on final and land safely.
0: I haven't tried stringing those two together yet, but as a separate maneuver, I did my power off 180s. It took about four times to kind of get used to the the pattern, uh, the size of the pattern, and whether or not to throw in flaps immediately, whether to drop the gear immediately. But it seems like, at least in the Cardinal, that if I kept a relatively normal pattern size, dropping the gear on downwind as I normally did, and then cutting the power uh, about halfway downwind, that I could easily do a a 180 turn into and pretty much hit the numbers every time. I'd uh, have to kind of gauge the flaps as I was approaching, but generally dropping 10 degrees fairly quickly and then adding the rest as I was on short final seemed to be enough to dream bring me in and pretty much hit the, the spot every time.
1: That's that's good. I, I like how you talked about the flap settings, and I want to get into that in a little bit. But uh, first off, is your instructor making you hit the numbers?
0: Well, actually, I'm not hitting the numbers. I'm hitting the, uh, it, the airport I was at didn't have a 500-foot marker, uh, so there was a little spot on the runway that I was aiming for. But it was about okay. 500 to 1,000, between 500 and 1,000 feet down the runway from the numbers.
1: Okay, so you're not, you're not out uh, aiming for the 1,000-foot markers or the numbers. You're aiming kind of in between. You had a spot you are aiming for in between. It's
0: a big grease spot on the runway.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, good, good. Yeah, I'm um, not really, even though an examiner could give you the numbers, I'm not really fond of instructors who give students the numbers as a touchdown point for the power off 180 because um, I personally know a series of, uh, of students and instructors who have made their students land short of the runway uh, for that reason. That's not so, good. No, it's it's <laughs> it's really not good, especially for the instructor. So
2: really uh, landing landing shorts, not good. I, I don't understand. Fill me in. What's what's wrong with not landing on the runway?
1: Well, for one, you lose your job. From my experience,
0: <laughs> <laughs> so so there's a lot of paperwork.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of yeah. paperwork, and there's something about a seven and a nine, but whatever. Uh, but anyway, the thousand foot markers are perfect. Are, are a perfect example of what you should be aiming for for a. Power off 180 because the power off 180, the PTS states that you should have uh, that the PTS allows rather uh, zero feet before your touchdown point and 100 feet after your touchdown point is acceptable for completing this maneuver. So the thousand foot markers happen to be 100 feet long. So if you aim for the very front of the thousand foot markers, then you have a suitable visual reference of a hundred feet past that, which is the marker. So, um, it, it's, it's perfect. And it's, a, you know, it's a thousand feet past the numbers. So you don't land in the
2: grass and lose your job. Uh, do, you, do you tell the tower that you're going to be practicing that maneuver when you're doing it? So that they uh, know that you're doing a rather non-standard, uh, base to final or, you know, downwind base final.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, what you tell the tower is um, generally you're going to be making a short approach. A short approach pretty much covers it. If you do a touch and go, say I'm going to make a short approach for this touch and go, and they'll clear you for it. And Roger, and um, uh, go ahead and make it. Go ahead and kill the power, of beam your touchdown point, uh, which is per PTS. Make sure you're doing that. I know a lot of instructors who will just randomly in the pattern somewhere kill the power, but
2: the um, and right, I, you're basically uh, a beam. The, the touchdowns. If you're practicing right. this maneuver per book, per PTS, you're you're basically right. It's the PTSS the for power off, at, for a power off 180,
1: power idle a beam your touchdown point, which would be the thousand foot markers in my
0: my instance. Pretty much the same place yeah. you'd normally draw back power on a normal approach, except here you're going to complete idle. Right. Well,
2: you know, it's, you know what's interesting is uh, how similar I mean, that that maneuver, the commercial maneuver, is to mountain flying. I mean, this is a, a weird segue here, but uh, one of the things that that was drilled into to me for for mountain flying, at least in, in I mean, truly in backcountry when you're when you're in the canyons and the and the train is above you and you're in this weird uh, circumstance, it's get all your flaps in right away. In other words, stabilize the aircraft with full flaps because you you might as well just get it slowed down to the full flap speed because you're you're gonna want to bring it in and drag it in as as slow as you can, maybe even hang it on the prop a little bit um, so you know unlike traditional uh you know, training and flying, where you you know incrementally add flaps. You know, you you're downwind and you are base to final, and then your or your you know downwind to base, base to final. That's at least the way I learned was, you know, 10 degrees flaps on on downwind, and when you turn base to final, add the 20 degrees, and when you turn or not base to final, but downwind to base, add the next 20, then when you turn final, go ahead and pull them all in. The uh, uh, mountain flying, it was like. Okay, uh your beam the, the touchdown point full flaps. <laughs> you know? Oh really? Yeah, oh yeah. Basically it's it's as soon as, as soon as you've as soon as you've uh picked the, or again, this is just uh, a Pete Nelson, uh, the guy that uh, teaches taught the uh the mountain flying course I I learned, which is hey, when when you're in the mountains and you're in the canyons, you're already trying to fly fairly slow. Uh, when you're you know starting to circle to your uh landing and so the, the whole point is just get the damn flaps in. Just get them in. <laughs> and, and you now are a oh, lot less busy. I just, just start-
1: want to say, I just want to say if I had a dollar for every time I told a student, just get your damn flaps in. <laughs> I'd be a millionaire. All right. Continue. Oh,
2: well, and, and that that's his point, which is like, okay, you're, you're, you now have the airplane in the configuration you wanted in. And now you can start looking for moose. You can start looking for, you know, you know, you're not looking for other vfr traffic you're looking you know you're looking for the the weird things and and in, in the case of you know the first place i i think of is cabin cabin creek which is this uh there is no uh pattern that you can do there because uh it's so constrained uh you know you can come in from the left you can come in from the right but uh your your base is basically defined by the fact that there's a cliff and and Obviously, you can't fly through rock, so you turn at that point, and and <laughs> and, and, and there is no go round because the the airport's uphill, and and there's, there's the you know so once once you're on final, the word final takes on a whole new meaning. <laughs> uh, but the point is that's the the, the the thing is if you have all your flaps in, then you know, you've got a stabilized approach, you're on final, and with all, with with a capital F, and uh, and so you can hit hit. The numbers, so to speak, um, but it's the same deal. It, the whole point is uh, the reality is you you, you or it, or it's similar. When I've only practiced that maneuver a couple times, Stu uh, and and I'm, I'm referring to the others do uh, that that com- basically it's the same commercial maneuver, which is you know yank the power, pull the full flaps in, and and then control energy so you can land on the numbers.
0: Well, that's a little different than the commercial maneuver in that you. You do have the addition of power if you find yourself falling a little bit short on the commercial maneuver. You you can't add power, so you delay the flaps until you're really sure you have it made. And I found it that I I felt more comfortable delaying flaps a little longer than necessary and slipping in so that I control a little little better.
2: Thank you. you. What's funny funny is I think maybe because of my that that training. My approach would probably be, uh, well, and and also the nature of my airplane, which is to practice that maneuver, I'd probably, you know, pull power, pull flaps, and then learn where my airplane, how how my airplane, you know, how much. Negative, negative. You would, you would, (laughs) you would, you would would land short. And um, let me tell you why.
1: Because it's all dependent on the winds. So when you're on final, let's just say the majority of time, if you're on final, you're going to have a decent headwind, right? Right. If you're downwind and you lose your engine downwind, and right. You you put full flaps and you decide to glide it in for the rest of the traffic pattern. Once you turn final, if you're a little too far in that glide path and you're full flaps, because if you lose an engine, you can't take out flaps, right? Because you drop like a rock.
2: Right, so but you, just, you know at the same time, you know, here and I don't want to interrupt you, but the counter is that. In, in my airplane, if, if I'm a beam, the touchdown point, and then I and I lose power, and I immediately turn to the towards the runway. Basically, I'm I basically as soon as I lose power and I'm a beam, my touchdown point, and I turn basically base right there from downwind. Which like, is which is what you're supposed to do in the maneuver. Right, I it, exactly. On. I was just say that's the whole point. Is that's what you're supposed to do in the maneuver. It's like, dang, I am high because. Uh, and so I'm immediately feeling like I, you know, you know, if I was in a, a, the arrow or actually I, I, the only time I've really practiced that maneuver was in, in an arrow and it sank like a rock, but at the same time, you know, when you throw the gear out and put full flaps in and start turning base to final, uh, but yeah, you're right. You know, the, the reality is flaps are, are still the last thing you add because, well, yeah. The, and then that was what my early training was. You, you don't add flaps until the runway is made. Until you are exact, absolutely that's it. That's positive it. that the runway is made, you don't put flaps in. That's exactly right.
1: There you go. That's exactly right. And,
2: and, that, and that's the thing. is In my airplane, if I lost power and I'm going to beam the numbers, if I pull full flaps, I will make the runway. It's a gimme. Well, it depends
1: on what the winds are. Now, I mean... Uh, this maneuver is entirely, this is the, what I consider the hardest maneuver for commercial rating. This is what, and a lot of people say it's the lazy eight or yada, yada, yada. But, but realistically, this is what I see the majority of students failing their check right on is the power off 180 because they do not hit their point. And because they do not hit their point, it's because they misjudge the wins. So not only do you might have a headwind, but you might also have a crosswind. So if you add if you lose your power, add full flaps in in the downwind and turn base, and you're going directly into headwind on base. You're right. going to, you're, you're never going to make the runway. It's that simple. You're not right, right. To, you're not going to
2: make the runway. It comes back to that whole situational awareness that knowing where where are you, where is the wind?
1: Right. So well, right. So you keep your flaps up. Make sure you put in best glide immediately when you hold your, your, um, your altitude. So best glide, gliding around, coming around on final. I mean, aim it directly towards the numbers so you get right over the runway. So you make sure you're not going to miss the runway. And once you know that you can make the runway, then you can start aiming for your touchdown point in the maneuver. So there's two points. There's uh, two parts to this maneuver. Part one is make sure you're going to make the runway. Then part two is make sure you're going to land on your touchdown point. And that's, that's the whole maneuver. That's the steps right. you should take. So part one is uh, you power to idle, beam your touchdown point, turn towards the runway or the numbers. In my case, I like them to turn towards the numbers a little bit in front of the 1,000-foot markers. Best glide on base down towards that. So if your flaps are up and you have a strong headwind, uh, if there's a crosswind on the runway, so you're in base, you have a strong headwind, you can still make the runway because your flaps aren't down. Then you can turn final, and if you're final, if you do it correctly, you should wind up a little bit high. Because if you're in traffic right, pattern, right. if you're in traffic pattern altitude downwind, and you don't add flaps and you turn right towards the runway of being your touchdown point, you should be a little bit high. So at this point, you should be slipping, uh, slipping, right. the, air, slipping right. the aircraft. Aiming for the numbers, slipping the aircraft, rolling out over the numbers. And uh, for me, and a lot of examiners don't like this, but it worked every time for me in the Cutlass 172. And of course, your airplane may differ, but it worked every time for me. Is right, rolling out in ground effect right over the numbers, then dumping all the flaps at once uh, at a certain airspeed. Would cause you to hit thousand foot markers every time, and I mean,
2: <laughs> and I mean, I. Hate I mean, nothing wrong
1: with cheat, man. There's nothing wrong with cheat. There's it, nothing it, in the There's nothing in the PTS that says you can't do that. But hey, the exactly,
2: all you have to do is hit it, man. That's all.
1: Exactly the PTS the PTS says the power. Idle a
0: beam your touchdown point and you yeah, hit it doesn't your touchdown. Say how,
2: how, it doesn't say how you did it. it exactly says, right.
0: Now, I need you to try it. that. Uh, exactly. What I was doing was was pretty much doing a main, maintaining a normal pattern, but without flaps. Uh, I need to try that because I wasn't turning when I turned directly to the numbers after cutting the power. I, I found I was way too high, even with a slip. I wasn't getting in there. Well, let me okay. tell you. Let me tell you, Stuart. with the
1: Yeah. Let me tell you, Stuart. With the Cutlass One Seventy Two. If you were 80 knots rolling wings level and ground effect over the numbers and dumped full flaps, you would hit the thousand foot markers every time. It was guaranteed. I mean, you couldn't not. And uh, the, the cardinal will probably be a little bit faster. So I'm thinking if you're...
2: Uh, so you're saying you, you have full flaps in and then you drop them after when you're, you're, you're rolling over the numbers, you're rolling over the thousand foot mark and then... You go zero to 30%. uh, It's it's 30% in the cardinal, right, Stuart?
1: 40%. 40%. 40 40%. degrees. Okay. So if you're, I'm going to say, if you're 85 knots right over the numbers and you go from zero to 40 degrees flaps, you would probably hit the thousand foot markers. I'll have to try that. that. and uh, oh, that, yeah, that
2: sounds like a fun, you know, again, that's all right, there we go. So oh, it's,
1: it's really fun. I had a student that was like holding the dashboard because I, when I demonstrated the maneuver, it's there's a thousand foot markers, pull power to idle, nose it over to the runway. Here I am. I'm, I'm high. I forward slip it. I'm, I'm slipping it right to the to the numbers and I, and I roll out right over the numbers. Dump flaps. Hold it. Hold it. Hold it. Hold it. Hit the thousand foot markers simulate max braking don't actually do max braking just say out loud i'm simulating it so you don't actually destroy your aircraft and the guy was just death gripped on the on the dashboard like oh my gosh i thought you were just about to doze it into the ground
0: because, that's something i want to try tomorrow
2: <laughs> yeah definitely oh, yeah, yeah yeah that's the next thing i go out and play with well actually i need to go play with holds but still I, i've got to do that too well you
0: gotta land sometime
2: that's true. Exactly. So why not land aggressively?
1: So that's my that's my power off 180. It's pretty
2: oh, extreme. Man, I like that. I like that. No, but, you know, the thing is, what's funny is a lot of it's about formulas. It's coming up with with something that you can replicate. And, uh, you know, that I I can mentally picture what you're talking about. Exactly.
1: Well, it's really hard to hit the thousand foot marker because. If, you, if your airspeed is too low, like you pitch in for best glide, it's basically a short-field landing where you don't have any ground effect cushion and you just land short of the 1,000-foot markers because there's no ground effect. Because you're yeah, too and slow. And
2: and this is one of those things. This is going back to when I learned how to fly, and this is you know decades and decades ago. You know, I learned to fly on this 20-foot-wide, 2,800-foot-long runway. I mean, literally it was 20... There were there were it was a two track that the average width of uh, you know a Cessna uh, gear was at where what the, the it was gravel or I mean it was it was paved but you, there were two spots that were clearly where the it's kind of a, a chip seal so as a result if you got. Off the center line of the runway you're you're kicking up gravel into the the thing and that and the instructor would just yell at you and you know <laughs> but it, and I hate it when that up, happens it was only twenty eight hundred feet, and so between the being narrow and being short uh, the other thing he would always i mean i always he never really did it. it was almost like one of those Catholic schools where they where they whack you on the knuckles with a ruler kind of thing. I always felt like that's what it was when I went through. What, uh, learning how to fly? The uh, if you added power any time on final, you basically ruined it. You were a failure. Well, you have to think about it this way. If and you, it's, if, it's, if you if, all, every, every all my my entire private my entire instruction was that every landing was a dead stick landing. Power off. Or, or thereabouts, or if not power off, it was taught as though you don't have power to add. If you can't make it through energy management, then you really didn't land.
1: Well, you have to think about it like this anyway. I mean, you have to, instructors have to teach their students. I don't know if you guys were taught this way, but if you have to salvage a landing, by adding act, power. Act, <laughs> yeah, by adding power, if you don't have a stabilized approach, Go ahead and do a go around anyway. If you're not, if you're at the, pr- if you're on final and you're on an approach where you have to adjust your power constantly to get to where to get to the runway, uh, you need to do a go around. Truthfully, but,
2: well, that that then that was basically it. I mean, my the the uh, what was drilled into my head is if you if you touch the throttle after you turn, you know, from uh, downwind to base to final, then then you basically didn't plan it correctly. Right. Exactly.
1: Exactly right. You either rolled out on final too high or too low and you need to do a go around and come back and do your traffic pattern. Well,
2: and, and, and again, the cardinal sin was, was again, if you added power, it meant that you were going to come up short. You didn't have the energy to hit the runway. You were not going to make it. Exactly right.
0: That's pretty much Man. the way I did it with the power off one eighties. If I was hitting final and didn't feel like it was going to be right, Power up, go around, save the time, save the the avgas, let's just do it again.
1: Exactly right. Very good, Steve. Well,
2: I was just going to say, I think that's what that power off 180 is, basically taking that to an extreme. It's basically just turning that into a drill and an exercise, and you also have to have to hit the numbers. So the commercial rating, the
1: flying portion of the commercial rating really is demonstrating your pilot skills at the minimum or maximum envelope of the aircraft truthfully that's what it is
2: hi i'm will
1: and i'm david and we're two of the voices in your head come join us in the virtual hangar for a little good old-fashioned hangar flying well it's not really old-fashioned what do you mean well it's a skype-based virtual hangar that only exists on the internet but we got beer Hmm, that is true and we never know who we might run into yeah yeah i see that and I really did get stick time in that F-16. Okay,
2: okay, you win. Um, come join us for some good old-fashioned hangar flying. Look for the Pilot's Flight Podlog in iTunes. Or visit us at
0: pilotsflightpodlog.com.
2: We need to wrap it up. Um, any shout-outs? You know, shout-out for me, uh, uh, I'd like to shout-out to a couple, a couple different folks. Uh, one is uh, Pete Nelson. Pete is uh, with the... Middle Fork Aviation. Uh, I uh, Pete's got a mountain flying clinic, and uh, uh, I'll, I'll pitch this again probably later, but uh, it's the one I took, and uh, $1,600, you get six hours of mountain flying, you get uh, instruction, uh, you know, ground school, as well as the six hours in, in uh, the Middle Fork area. Uh, great, great training. I mean, I, I just, I look back on that, and it, it enabled me to, uh, to To see so much more of the, the area I live in and uh, as well as enhance my confidence so so shout out to Pete and he also is the guy that did my annual uh, on the airplane so I also owe him for that. I have a few uh, shout outs um, one is to the
1: controllers at uh, Alliance Airport here in Fort Worth, Texas the uh, Kilo Alpha Foxtrot Whiskey who are always so eager to help out Student pilots with those pattern drills and um, and whatever the instructor needs, uh, such as uh, turning all the high intensity runway lighting up and during private pilot night flights. <laughs> and uh, I'd like to give a shout out to uh, some Twitter followers that uh, uh, are listening to this podcast. Uh, one is uh, Valerie Booth, who says she was going to check out this podcast and she really enjoys it. And uh, Soy Pan at twitter.com and uh i'd like to give another shout out to uh gabby who uh who knows who she is but is one of my best students that i've ever had who started listening to the show and uh um, started giving me some feedback on it so uh, i know gabby's listening so i want to give her a shout out
0: i have one shout out for marty uh he's pilot 2b the number two in the letter b on oh, twitter right. yeah and uh marty is uh joining the the world of the gainfully unemployed here as he finishes his career in truck driving and uh is going to pursue something else and uh that may be aviation related maybe not but uh i've really enjoyed following him on twitter and kind of as he makes a transition here and want to give a
2: shout out to marty to the folks at the mile high flyers i i enjoy listening to them i uh and also since since our last podcast i did uh uh, download the full string of uh the pilots uh or the, the down under folks and so i i'm i haven't gotten to their current podcast because i'm still going through the back background material i'm going through the early i i have this linear nature that i have to start from episode one Oh, oh i'm completely the same way completely same. i did the same thing with the uh, ucap I, I when i discovered them they were they were quite a ways into it but i i I did the full ritual of, of going through all of them before i I caught up uh, and <laughs> episode very one, well,
1: episode oh one of yeah the I, cap where they're like so these reciprocating engines right
2: <laughs> Oh man it was great i, I, I it, it was so funny because it's like you know I, I almost wanted to cheat and move forward, but I was enjoying getting to know them um uh, from episode one and then uh, you know I, I i went down to sun and fun and met him and uh mentioned that and and i think it's a common experience you you know you start at the, the the long end of the tail and you work your way through until you catch up and and uh you know now the nice thing is we as a pilot or as a podcast are laying down our our long tail and you know to be honest i actually think i already know that if if i would have bumped into this podcast when when i was uh Interest, if you're interested in, in getting your IFR, this is the, what we're covering right now, your IFR, your commercial, where, where the three of us are, you as an instructor, me as a, an IFR student, and Stu as a, a commercial pilot. I mean, God, this is invaluable to bump into a podcast where you get to listen to people who are going through it right there in real time. Uh, So shout out to all the people who finally found us and are now listening and realizing, wow, I'm an IFR pilot or I'm a a commercial student. It's a good time to be uh, listening to a podcast.
0: If you are listening to this and find it useful, uh, we'd encourage you to go to iTunes and uh, list a review for us. Uh, It it doesn't really create anything for us financially, but it does help people find us if we are a little higher in the rankings then uh, the iTunes reviews help in, uh, in promoting that.
1: Yes, please go to iTunes and give us some really good reviews and um, so more people can find us. And uh, if you give us a five-star review, we'll mention your name and the review that you uh, uh, posted on this podcast and give you a shout-out.
0: Thank you for listening to the Pilot's Journey podcast. We'd love to hear your questions, suggestions, or experiences. You can reach us at our website at pilotsjourneypodcast.com or leave us voicemail at 469-277-2359. You can also follow me as Pilot Stu. that's S-T-U, on Twitter or mytransponder.com.
1: You can reach me on Twitter or mytransponder at CFISTU, that's S-T-E-W, also at CFIStew.com.
2: And you can follow me on Twitter or my transponder as uh, idmike or at uh, november225mike.com. Or
0: you can follow us collectively on Twitter as Pilot's Journey.
2: Until next time, go fly and enjoy the journey.
1: Please note that this podcast is intended for informational and entertainment purposes only. Please consult your own qualified flight instructor before attempting anything discussed in this podcast.
0: Copyright 2010, Fully Stewed Productions. And one mic.